This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We have today sort of a very unique podcast. We have two twin brothers that are both brilliant that have written a book, Why Not Better and Cheaper, about healthcare, about healthcare and innovation. Jim and Bob Robertser, James and Robert, let me ask you to each take a moment to introduce yourself. I don't know who's first in the birth order. You guys could decide however you want who introduces themselves first. I know you're identical twins. But, but either one of you takes the lead and introduce yourself, uh, and, then, and then we'll talk to you about the book and what you're studying and what you do. Great. Okay. So Jim, Jim always likes to go first because he's older. He's 10 minutes older, and he insists on the privilege. Go ahead, Jim. That, I insist on the privilege. That's right. And that's why I'm named James, so my name goes first in the title. Uh, my name is uh, Jim Rebitzer. I'm a healthcare economist at Boston University, and I've spent my career um, studying how the healthcare system works and doesn't work, and how or healthcare organizations work and don't work. And through that, throughout that time, I've been having ongoing conversations with my brother, Bob. And I'm Bob Rebitzer, and I am a recovering management consultant. I spent about 35 years doing strategy uh, work for a number of big firms, Accenture, and, 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 uh, and worked at United Healthcare as a vice president in their mental health unit. And uh, um, I have worked with delivery systems, and uh, insurance companies and foundations and state and local government agencies all working on healthcare strategy and policy. So can we tell you about the book? Yeah, well, tell me about the book. And, yeah. and I, I will ask at some point whether Rebitzer's a, a, a derivative of Rebitzin, but it'll be a different discussion. <laughs> but, 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 so but I ask I, for a moment. I, I ask a Yiddish, I ask a, to your second question, I ask a Yiddish scholar, where did the name Rebitzer come from? And he said, probably there was a Rev Yitzchak somewhere in the family tree, and it became Rebitzer. So that's the best we have for it. I mean, 100%. I'm sure that there's, there's some derivation there, and it's a different discussion for our audience for a different time, but fascinating. <laughs> tell us about – you tell us why not. Why? I mean, it seems like getting cheaper and better is so hard, given the staffing shortages we have, how we sort of mismanage residency spots, or there's not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough techs. Yeah. I mean, it seems like this, this concept of trying to close this gap of getting healthcare better and cheaper – seems to be, from all I could tell, in an aging and growing population, getting harder rather than easier. Tell me why that doesn't have to be so and how we can fix that. Yeah, so our book is an answer to a simple question. How come healthcare doesn't get better and cheaper like our cell phones do? And our answer is that it's too easy to make money with low-value innovations and too hard to make money with innovations that reduce cost. And the reasons for that have to do with the incentives that are at play in the system, the social and professional norms that work in healthcare, and the market structure. And we wrote the book because usually when you think about healthcare systems, you think about three vital signs. You think about cost, quality, and access. And we wanted to introduce a fourth vital sign, and that is a healthy healthcare system also produces a stream of innovations that provide more value at lower cost to patients and to society. Thank you. And, and let me ask your twin for his comments on how do we solve some of these issues? Is it doable? Oh, it's. Uh, we think it's very doable, uh, but it's not a quick fix. Uh, the book is full of examples of the way that uh, the incentive structures disappoint. They, they end up producing innovations that are either too, makes it too hard to produce cost reductions or too easy to produce something uh that doesn't create enough value. A nice example of that is um, 
uh, around antibiotics. You know, antibiotics are terrible. They're central to modern medicine. They're not just for cuts and bruises. You can't have chemotherapy or modern surgery without sophisticated antibiotics. But the bugs evolve and get resistant. And you think, wow, the patent system and the market incentives in the patent system should make it super profitable for companies to dive in and produce new antibiotics. But the answer is it doesn't. Uh, new antibiotics are almost always a money loser, and as a consequence, we have this generational problem of just not enough new antibiotics in the pipeline. And so th th what's the problem? And the problem has to do with the incentives built into the patent system. Uh, what's the first thing you do with a new antibiotic? The first thing you do responsibly is you don't use it because they tend to be more expensive, no more effective against existing bugs, and you save them for when the existing bugs develop resistance. But if you don't use them, if you engage in wise stewardship, the patent system doesn't work. Uh, and there's fixes to that. There's fixes to that that are on the table, that are near passing in Congress called the Pasteur Act, where you simply give, you move from a patent-based fee model to a subscription model, where people are paid up, uh, developers, innovators have paid upfront fees for developing new antibiotics uh, rather than uh, simply making money on sales, sort of like your Netflix subscription. You pay a subscription for access rather than for the movies you watch. But, but, but that's hard to do, isn't it? Because people are afraid that we'll pay for a whole bunch of things that nobody really necessarily wants or uses. Like we have to be so careful what we decide to pay for upfront if we move to that type of patent system. You're exactly yeah. right. It's not so much that it's hard as, as it is different, right? Uh, and you just need a different set of institutions to help negotiate these fees. Well, let, me, be... let, me give it, let me give you another example of one that yeah. just happened recently, and that's the, um, the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. Uh, that was also one where they used, a, it wasn't exactly a prescription model, uh, but the federal government set a set of requirements, and they said, look, there's a big purchase sitting behind any company that can make a, comp a vaccine that performs according to these criteria. And in nine months, people responded powerfully to that incentive, and we had, in record time, a vaccines against COVID. So there is precedent for changing how we approach these things. There's also, um, I mean, when we think about innovation, we're not only thinking about things that you can patent, like drugs and devices, though we do think about that and write about that. It's also about cost-reducing process innovations. Bob, tell the knee story real quick. Okay. So some, sometimes uh, Stanford University asks me informally for my reaction to new developments. And I uh, was introduced to a very uh, uh, brilliant mechanical engineering professor who had developed a way to alter the way people walk, to change their gait. And it had the effect of taking about pressure off the knee that was equivalent to losing as much as 20% of your body weight. And they said, what do you think of this idea? And I said, well, you know, you're addressing a really big social need because if, you, if this works as advertised and if you're able to reduce pressure on people's needs, you may be able to reduce the need for a really difficult and common surgery, which is knee replacement surgery as a way of managing knee pain. Uh, so I think you're you're onto something that's a real social need. And they said, is there a good business here? And I said, ah, that's a different question. Uh, who's the customer? So payers, yeah, they'd be really interested in in uh, a device like this, but payers aren't in the business of buying medical devices or telling doctors what medical devices to use. Okay, so maybe orthopedics, orthopedic surgeons would be interested in this. And I think they would be interested in it. However, 
uh, their primary, and because they care for their patients and they don't like the idea of people suffering from knee pain and joint pain. But uh, their business, however, is running hopefully high volume uh, joint replacement shops, which are very difficult and complicated uh, operations to manage. They're at best the kind of interested, but not a primary customer for uh, innovation like this. Well, what about health systems? Health systems would surely be interested. Well, they would be, they, and like, like the doctors, they care about their patients. But you know, joint replacement is usually one of the two or three most profitable lines of business for a hospital. So they're gonna be mostly focused on joint replacement and not on a product like this. And you go down the line and you realize, here's a socially valuable innovation uh, that's gonna struggle to find a customer. And in any other part of the economy, you solve that problem. The payer would say, okay, we're gonna share some of the savings we've experienced with physicians and maybe with patients too. But in healthcare, for reasons we go through extensively throughout the book, those, that kind of uh, uh, profit sharing or cost sharing or value sharing arrangements are really hard to do. In the case of the knee, you could see one of the difficulties. If you uh, defer knee, uh, knee surgery now, uh, the benefits may occur years down the road when the patient is with another insurer. So the incentive to invest in these things and these sort of cost-sharing arrangements uh, tends to be very low. Does that help, Scott? Yes, yes, but it is it is complicated. I mean, you saw something similar. You know, cardiovascular programs made so much money for so long on cardiac bypass surgery, and, and at some point, stents took a huge part of that market out of the table. That's um, right. And, and literally closed down some cardiovascular hospitals that were built just to be heart hospitals. And it was a huge change in how how heart surgery and heart, heart issues, cardiovascular issues were handled. And you see different examples of that. And, and you, yes, and in part, it's the incentive system. It's also partly the communication system, too, because everybody above a certain age, and I'm at that age, has some level of knee issues, whether it's some arthritis or some meniscus tears or something, particularly right. if you're active or not active, I guess. Right. And, and, you know, and obviously the easiest thing is lose 20 pounds, but, oh, my God, that's harder than it should be unless we use the weight loss drugs, which are crazily expensive, and that's already killing the bariatric surgeries, which, God bless, good, 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 good. But, but right. there are so many of these things that have big changes. I just don't know how you get from here to there on a lot of this stuff. And, and maybe tell us, you know, how do you see some of this change? In, or, I mean, I saw the change with cardiovascular stents versus surgery. Right. And what a game changer that was. I see with the bariatric or the weight loss diabetes drugs, that's already being a game changer for bariatric surgery. So I think, I think your question, I think it's a great question. It's really about disruption and how does disruption play out, how do you get from point A to point B with disruptive new technologies? And these technologies are disruptive. Can, uh, let me tell you a story about two older technologies that maybe could illustrate how this disruption plays out. You know, about the same time in America, two new innovations appeared on the scene. One was electronic medical records, which were considered to be absolutely essential for a system in the 1980s when they first came up, started to come out. And the other one was uh, laparoscopic uh, uh, gallbladder surgery, which is a really common uh, abdominal uh, surgical procedure, and suddenly you could do it laparoscopically. And they came out at the same time. And it took about three years for laparoscopic gallbladder surgery to take over. And it took, uh, everybody was doing it. And it took 30 years and billions of dollars in federal subsidies, and we still aren't happy with the way the electronic medical records work. Both really disruptive technologies involving a lot of upfront costs and retraining of personnel, also retraining of personnel, one goes fast and, and is quickly absorbed, the other one doesn't. 
what's the difference? In our view, it's something called um, disruption costs. So when you switch over disruptions, what, so I'm sorry, switch over disruptions. When you switch from from electronic, you know, from paper records to electronic medical records, you're changing everybody's job in the whole place, and you're turning part of physician's role partly into a data entry clerk. None of which they signed up for when they went to medical school. The switch, the switchover disruptions of going from the old system to the new system were huge. Gallbladder yeah. surgery, yeah, go gallbladder surgery. Everybody's still a surgeon. Everybody's still doing the kind of thing they were trained for in medical school, even if the tools and methods were com and, and uh, were completely transformed. So uh, one went easily, one doesn't. And so I think that illustrates that you know it's not just the technology itself and what it can do. But who's using it, how they're using it, the situation and the values in which it's being inserted. Uh, Bob, we, could be, we could be more specific than that. Yeah. Right. There are things that make switchover disruptions much harder to handle. Right? And one of those things has, uh, and, uh, and uh, there are two important things, and both of them Bob touched on. One of those things has to do with uh, mon monopoly. When a firm has a lot of market power, when an incumbent firm has a lot of market power, the switchover disruptions are really costly, and they're going to slow walk the innovation. Uh, it's not going to be job one for them to do it because it costs them a lot because their ongoing operations are so profitable. So monopoly is an enemy of switchover dis of disruptions. Um, and then the other piece is uh, social norms. As Bob was saying, the gallbladder surgery let people continue to be the kind of person they normatively wanted to be, that they were trained to be, that, thought, that, thought that this is what a good provider does. And um, not so much with the electronic health records. And those two lessons, those, the role of norms and the role of monopoly and market power, they have an important influence on the current transformative innovations like AI. So when you want to think about where change is easy and where change is going to be hard, those are two things our book really focuses on. And let me ask you each, what are you most excited about for this year coming up? What are you most excited about? And, and, and I'll give you another question. What advice do you give to sort of leaders looking at healthcare and innovation? So, so what are you excited about this year? And what advice do you give the leaders? Uh, the things I'm, I'm excited about, I'm excited about the potential for AI, uh, but it has to be done in the right way. If you position AI that you're going to replace physicians and nurses, it's going to be like electronic medical records and take a long time. But if you position it as a tool to help physicians and nurses and other providers interact with their patients more the way they want to be with their patients, I think it could take off. The way to do that is to start in the back office, start with uh, uh, documenting, getting rid of paper, paperwork, uh, documenting uh, patient visits and the like, and start with those applications and move forward and build trust over time that it's a reliable technology. The other thing I'm really excited about is the GLP-1 drugs and their potentially vast applications for inflammation related diseases all over the body. Uh, Jim, advice? Uh, in terms of advice for, for innovators, I think the, the advice that I would give them, and it comes directly sort of out of her book, is that these new innovations, uh, they're wonderful. They take your breath away. But that it's important to focus not just on the wonder and the uh, magical elements of new innovations. You need to focus on, you also need to think about the incentives for adoption you got to think about switchover disruptions. You got to think about the relationships to social norms that are really and social roles that are super powerful motivators of people's willingness to accept change in the health sector. Thank you. And, and then tell us again the name of the book and where people could find the book. 
It's called Why Not Better and Cheaper? Healthcare and Innovation is a subtitle. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's available on Amazon and on our website, revitzers.com. You can, uh, there's a link that'll take you through to where you could order it as well. And can I just say one thing about the book? While it's very carefully researched, it is also very full of applied examples and it's short. We wrote a short book so people would read it and absorb it. Short is so critical. I, I'll ask you one further question. You don't have to answer this. The title of this is Why Not Better and Cheaper? Do, do your parents feel like they sort of hit the lottery and followed the advice and having two kids for the price of one when they had you to deliver? <laughs> I think we nearly killed our mother. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So why don't we leave it at that? I don't think they, I don't think she felt she got a bargain. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it, it depends on on the perspective. The glasses have full. The glasses have empty. It is what it is. But two successful sons, congratulations! Right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you guys so much. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks, help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way. Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there.